Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. Joining me for this episode is paranormal researcher and investigator Morgan Knudsen. Morgan is the founder of the award-winning Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings, which developed a number of educational programs to help people better understand and appreciate supernatural phenomena. The best known being Teaching the Living, which was also developed into a book based on the program. Morgan's latest book is The Gift of Instinct, Paranormal Lessons for an Extraordinary World, in which she shares some practical ideas on how the paranormal can teach people about who we really are and the instinct that calls us to a greater connection with what we call spirit. In the interview, I begin by talking about how her interest in the paranormal started off and developed into a career researching and investigating this field. We talked about some of the places she has investigated in Canada and the legacy of the arrival of European settlers in the country, which had a drastic effect on the indigenous cultures who lived there, both literally and spiritually, something which led us to talking about the Wendigo phenomenon. Later on, we also talked about the mysterious Van Meter Visitor, a bizarre cryptid reported to terrorise a town in Iowa in the early 20th century. One thing to note Our conversation does include the details of a gruesome murder associated with the Wendigo, so you may wish to avoid that part of the interview if you're not a fan of that sort of subject matter. That small piece of housekeeping done, on with the episode. Enjoy! Morgan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I was interested when uh, researching for our conversation that there's a family history of paranormal investigation and research with your great-great-grandfather, uh, Dr. Albert Durant-Watson. When your own interest in the in these subjects began, were you aware of him? No, not at all. Actually, it was, it was really strange because uh, I didn't know much about him until about six years into forming Entity Seeker Research and Teachings. And uh, so it came as a as quite a surprise because nobody in the family really talked about him to me. Wow. Okay. And so, how did your interest in the paranormal start off? It for me, it just started off with with my own experiences. I think like most people uh, start, at least in in the parapsychology side of things, you know, people you you end up having your own experiences and and whatnot, and then uh, uh, your your interest either you know, become something of, of complete fear or curiosity. And for me, it just, it went from initial fear to complete curiosity. So I was just fascinated with 
the things that were, were going on around me in the the place that we were living. And yeah, it just, it just spawned from there. And, and thankfully I was, I was really fortunate to have uh, access at the time uh, because it was long before the ghost hunting shows and uh, stuff like that, the sort of the entertainment side of it was on television uh, to, to be watching legitimate investigators like uh, Carrie Gaynor and Lloyd Auerbach and, and people who were, you know, really worth their salt in the field. Uh, so I sort of grew up with that and it was, it was really, really beneficial long run. Cool. So you mentioned there that the experiences that were happening at your home when you were growing up, can you just talk about them a little? Yeah, we had, uh, we lived in a number of places, my family and I, um, that were, were haunted in, uh, in, in British Columbia. And, uh, there, there was two particular places uh, that we that we lived in that were really significantly active with with bizarre things going on. Everything from uh, apparitions to bizarre noises to uh, you know things moving by themselves and uh, our animals reacting to them and it, just all sorts of things. But it was a it was a, a few years there between these these two places that. Uh, were, were just really, really, really active with, with no explanation. And, uh, and both my parents were very open to, to, to this stuff as well. I mean, none of them were in denial about what was going on. Uh, so, uh, you know, I kind of got to live in the, the midst of it, I think, for a, a good number of years and, uh, and, and got to experience and, and look at it close up. Oh, okay. So um, did you do your own investigations? Did you sort of try and work out what might be causing that, that activity? Well, I mean, at the time, I mean, I was like 10, 12 years old. So, I mean, you know, I mean, you're not really doing any legitimate investigating at that point, but you're, you know, but yeah, like I, I would spend a lot of time uh, trying to understand it. Uh, I had a, a couple of friends at that, at that time period that they kind of knew that things were in the house were bizarre when they came over, there was stuff going on that was, that was kind of weird. And, uh, and they were really fascinated by it too. So there, there was stuff I think that we would try out, like, uh, you know, we'd have an experience and then, you know, I would say, don't tell me about the experience. And I would give my friend a piece of paper to go write down their experience. And I would write down my experience. And then we would compare it. Um, so there, even at that point in time, I think there was, you know, there, I, you know, I had some, I had some good ideas <laughs> back then, even though I had just, yeah, no experience. Cause I was just a kid, but, um, yeah, I was, I was definitely interested in getting to the bottom of, of what it was and what was causing that and uh and keeping my mind open so i i could definitely see how uh how those instances started to play into what i do now hmm. was it an old house no neither were old i would say 70s probably um so so neither were very old they just i think they had a they had a good number of people living in them so there was a lot of emotional uh, emotional energy that was that was floating around and stuff like that but but yeah no not particularly old oh okay um when i imagine uh, british columbia I've, I've been fortunate enough to visit vancouver once and canada is such a huge country it seems like there's a, it is. there are cities dotted throughout it but a lot of it is wilderness or wide landscape um was the house sort of close to nature was it was it something where you, where nature and the and that sort of environment were on the doorstep, or was it an urban environment? Oh, very urban. Um, we were right smack dead in the cities um, all the time. Because uh, I'm I'm definitely not a 
I'm not a rural person at all. I have to be, I have to be in the city. Um, so, and I mean, and, and Vancouver, BC, Vancouver, Surrey, all those places are, they're pretty huge. Um, and, uh, so yeah, no, we were, we were in, uh, uh, you know, very, very, very city oriented, uh, urban area for pretty much my entire life. I think I spent a little bit of time in one small town when I was a very little kid and that was about it. Other than that, it's all been major cities. Right. Okay. And that includes with your paranormal investigation work. Do you, have you ever gone out to rural places for that? I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by whenever there's the, some people living in a very rural environment, the relationship between the yeah. that sort of relationship being a sort of a, a prompt for unusual activity. Yeah, there's some some interesting places, especially um, in Alberta. Um, the I've got a, a case that I've been working now for a good number of years, and it's just been kind of this ongoing study. And uh, it's it's in a uh, a very very rural rural place that's uh, outside of uh, Edmonton by about an hour, a very much farming community and uh, and prairie. And that place is is it's been extremely unique with different types of activity on the land and in the house and uh, just very, very interesting location. Um, But yeah, so I mean, there's definitely a different vibe to to the stuff that goes on rural and and prairie, I think, because there's, there's different cultures, there's a different way of life. um, And there's more, there's more often that that's happened with the land itself and, uh, um, just a little bit sometimes there's more history depending on what city you're in um but i yeah i've definitely found that the the cases aren't so much they're not really more frequent but they're definitely unique to the to rural areas right yeah yeah i I imagine that there's a different relationship between the people and the landscape and in urban in urban areas there's a lot more people so it's almost as though people overwhelm their environment but in places where the aren't many people it's the other way around the, the environment is the is sort of the primary force if you will for a bit, for want of a better word yeah sometimes i mean i find that usually it's the more populated places that are typically the the, the more active um mm. so usually a, a lot of times people think well if you go to this abandoned place and it's going to be haunted and the odds are probably not um you know it's it's typically the places that have more emotional activity going on with with living people so that's usually the place that you're going to go to find, you know, the, the interesting things. But I think where you get into the the rural stuff, which is, which is interesting for me is you can get into a lot of the, the, the different cultures, um, especially in Canada, you've got a lot of first nations. Um, so mm-hmm. when you get into the rural areas, a lot of the, the, the activity can be a little bit different or it can be different and associated with uh, different beliefs or um, or lore or what we would consider lore and then it turns out not to be lore <laughs> but it's 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 interesting it's like it's just very 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 unique especially in Canada when you've you've got such a heavy blend of uh, of First Nations mm, absolutely yeah um so what led from your in- initial interest from when you were a, a child to becoming a, a professional paranormal investigator and starting entity seeker in in 2003. Oh, it's, it's crazy because, you know, I think, and the more people I talk to in the realm of parapsychology with, with my own podcast, Supernatural Circumstances, what I find is that when you, when people are initially 
drawn into this, however it happens for them, there is a hook that just grabs you. And I found this exact same thing where it was like once that I knew that this was possible, that these things were happening, it you can't unsee it, you can't unhear it, and you can't put it down. And uh, it was it was like that for me as well, where I, I just, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I knew that was what I was pursuing. And in Canada, you can only go so far with it because in Canada, it's not a recognized uh, discipline. It's not a recognized PhD like it is in the UK or, or the US or anything like that. Um, so, you, you know, you can't go to school for it here. You can't do anything like that. So you're, I was very much relegated to to what I could learn on my own, what I could, you know, download in terms of resources and things like that. And of course, this was even back before there was really internet for the most part. So um, it was a lot of reading. And uh, my my dear friend uh, and business partner, Stephanie Wirtz, like when I met her, uh, she and I, she had this exact same passion and and she was hooked on it as well. So the, the two of us spent our, our childhood basically in the books, our nose in the books, right through till we were, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. Um, th- this is what we did. And uh, uh, it was, it was something that we just couldn't, we couldn't put down. And when we began to see the the patterns and the, the, the things in the research that a lot of these investigators and whatnot were missing, um, we knew that we had something to offer the field that was, that was very special. And that was the birth of our, our program, teaching the living. But, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a really interesting journey because I, th- I think we, I, I think we just had, we, we just got the bug for it and, and we went, it was off and running and we just, we were so passionate about it. We just, we just couldn't put it down. Brilliant. So that would involve yourself and your business partner actually doing investigations and to detect the, these patterns that you'd noticed that perhaps hadn't been recognized by other investigators. Yeah, we we started off doing uh, some investigations, and it was funny because uh, when we we started to get called, we were some of the first people, along with a few others, to start this research in Alberta, and uh, there there wasn't really anybody else at the time, so it became a very quick novel novelty for for the public as well because it was just like, okay, what are they got? What are these guys doing? What what's going on? And, um, so a a lot of our clients were, uh, were really, uh, like heritage parks and, and and things like that. Um, and we ended up really, really quickly on the front page of the the local newspaper, um, and then got picked up by a, a a little local station, um, Shaw TV. And we did a, about a six season series called haunted Edmonton before we were picked up by discovery channel. And then we ended up shooting a a haunting in 2006, 2006. Um, but it, yeah, it was a lot of investigations. It was a lot of trial and error. Um, it was a lot of just trying out our ideas and and experimenting with a few things so that we knew that we were on the right track. And then somewhere in there, we we began to realize that this was something that we could we could present to people in a in an educational fashion as well. So we ended up uh, uh, creating these sort of lectures and workshops on our own because, as I say, there was nothing like this at the time in Alberta. So we uh, we began these these lectures and workshops and they were selling out really fast uh you know people were attending them in high numbers and we were really surprised because we were just like we honestly did not think that this was going to that this was going to go but we needed you know the ability to continue our research so i think tickets were like 10 bucks or something like that and we uh you know we we sort of pulled in our money that way so that we could continue 
what we were doing. But it was a yeah, it was a really interesting. It was it was a really interesting journey. It was a lot of pavement pounding. Wow. So when you did the haunted Edmonton series and and the investigations for that, did you have a a concept as to what a ghost was? Because there are, there are lots of theories about that. Um, some that differ, but many that are interesting. Did you find that you kept a few theories in mind, and and because of the nature of the the places that you were looking at or did you go into the investigations with a sort of an outline of what you thought a ghostly activity might be caused by i think we were both pretty open-minded um i I think we knew that this phenomenon was happening and we we were interested in in not only what the phenomenon could possibly be but also the role in which the living had to play within that phenomenon and so for us i think the 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 interest was twofold, but specifically the interest was with the living because we were really curious as to, you know, why some people were experiencing this and not others. Why were some people having a terrible time with it? And not others. Why were some people having a like wonderful experiences and then others had horrible experiences. Like we, we were really interested in the, the human aspect of it because we realized really quickly as we were moving through these, these cases and, and whatever that, you know, you can, you can study the phenomenon until you're blue in the face and, you know, you basically get a, a, a repeat of very similar phenomenon in every case. Um, and, you know, with the rare exception of, of something just right out to lunch. Um, but we, we realized that the, the main factor was the people and we wanted to know what it was that was, you know, spurring on, uh, this phenomenon, whether it be, you know, a, a spirit, something that's conscious, something that's just a replay of events. Um, I mean, we definitely had an outline of, a of, of the basics, you know, like the society psychical research has done a lot of work with that and, uh, you know, many other universities and things, but, um, we were just really fascinated as to, to why people were having the experiences they were and what we could do to help them. Uh, because ultimately, you know, the, the energy is going to do what it's going to do. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're left dealing with the the people and they're the ones that have the questions. So so that's really the angle that we took. Cool. OK, so for people who aren't familiar with Edmonton, can you just talk a little bit about that city and and maybe a couple of the places that you investigated um, that sort of highlight what you're talking about? Sure. So yeah, yeah, Edmonton's a it's an interesting little city because um it's it's the most populated northern city on the continent. Um it's uh it's I'm not sure what the population is anymore. It's a sort of a mega medium sized city, I guess. Um and uh it's got a very, very strong uh, First Nations base. It was originally First Nations uh territory, it's treaty land. Um, and it was brought in, I guess the Europeans came in in the, I would say late 1800s, 1700s to late 1800s. And, uh, it caused a lot of problems here. They, uh, there was a lot of famine. There was a lot of, uh, of, of killing and, uh, pillaging of the, the land of the first nations people here. So they were, they were really booted out and, uh, in, in horrible, horrible ways. And, uh, so, so Edmonton was kind of built on that foundation and the the story of the city was kind of buried there was there wasn't a lot of talk about it you never learned about this in school it was not spoken about um you know there was there was a lot of abuses that went on that nobody talked about so it it sort of was brought up on this really i guess 
hotbed of dishonesty in in my opinion and uh you know the the people that you know are here now a lot of a lot of people are just learning about the things that that went on uh back in the back in the day and what what grew the city into into what it is and so there's there's been a lot of uh of reconciliation efforts of people trying to just figure this figure all this out because nobody really uh, nobody had a, a solid understanding except for, of course, the First Nations peoples who were going, you know, I, th- this was, this was horrible. Why isn't anybody listening? So it's, it's had quite the history behind it. And um, the, so the places that are here often are, um, or some of the most haunted places I would say are, are things like even our river Valley where a lot of this stuff actually occurred. So we we've had, We've had some really unique experiences there. Um, our river valley has a lot of strange lights that show up uh, that originally we thought might actually be caused by the, the quartz beds that are actually underneath our river valley. We've got a very old, old city. Um, the uh, not, not the buildings themselves, but the, the land itself. Um, there's quartz beds underneath from old volcanoes and things like that. And uh, so the, our river valley, we, we thought, the lights might actually be stemming from some of these these quartz beds, but in fact they weren't. They were uh, completely independent. They they move independently. Um, people are reporting seeing them all the time. They're getting photos of them. Like they're just they're really interesting and really bizarre. There's another entity that's there that's been reported over the years that um, I've seen twice, uh, but some of the people that I work with have seen them. He's seen them even more frequently because they live closer, um, and they seem to come in the form of these great big black almost shadow type shapes, but are, are very solid, uh, very two dimensional and will walk down the paths of the river Valley. And people have, have run into those a couple of times. They've never, never been violent or anything like that, but they're just this, they're like these, we, we don't know. They're just, they're very strange. Um, and they seem to just wander the river Valley. We've had, uh, there's a, a really neat train station. It was one of the first train stations in the city, um, way back when the city was being developed and it's now a, a restaurant and a nightclub. And that place, uh, was my client for a good number of years. And, and they, we've had wonderful experiences there, including, a a, a little girl or, or seemingly little girl intelligence that is very interactive and has been for, for decades, um, she's uh, usually hangs out on the upper floor and uh, people that used to work at the place as a train station would uh, come back and, and visit um, because they remembered her so, so fondly and they would come back and visit and bring their kids to come and visit, which was kind of cool. So um, there's just been some, some really, really neat places uh, in the city uh, that, that we've, we've been to over the years. Um, a lot of the places unfortunately are getting ripped down now because there's a lot of, um, condo development and things like that. And Edmonton isn't so great at keeping their history alive. So a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of these buildings were, were losing. Oh, that is a shame. Um, just going back to the history of Edmonton and the, the, the land being first nations territory. Uh, do you think that when violence is committed on a large scale, it causes some sort of like metaphysical damage, which can manifest in, well, I guess our our realm, for want of better words. <laughs> oh, it's a really good question, you know, and I, and I think I think it's undeniable that paranormal activity and and emotion are undeniably linked. I mean, between my own research as well as research of people like Dr. William Roll, Dr. Scott Rogo, and people like that, I, I think the link to to emotional 
emotional awareness and emotional impact is is really clear. Um, and I think we're just getting into over the last, I would say, 15 years or so, what that actually means. And and it's taken um, it, it's taken people like Roll to take a look at things like uh, memory cells and things like that, the traces that we're leaving behind uh, in the, in the environment themselves. And, uh, that, you know, just our, our presence and our thought affects the world around us. Um, and, uh, I, I know for myself, like what I've seen over the years is that, you know, when, when there's been heaviness that has happened in a space, um, you know, we have the ability to pick up on that and, and, and feel that and understand that on a, on a very visceral level. So I, I, I really think that, yeah, that there's this, there's a uh, intrinsic connection um, to, to that. And what we've noticed is that often this is where these uh, sort of these negative entities seem to, to pop up is they seem to be sort of a reflection of, uh, of whatever, whatever thought is being put into that space. And if it's a negative thought, you kind of end up with an intelligence that is, uh, that reflects that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, this might be a bit of a, a cliche to think this, but First Nations people, I imagine that they have um, what might be described as a more spiritual connection with their landscape, um, with the concept of the mountains and rivers and places like that being beings in their own right. Um, do you think that those those beings can survive if the people that, that they had the relationship are gone? Are the settlers and the descendants of the people that settled the land are they encountering something that had a relation with the people that they replaced and that could that could that landscape be sort of angry i don't know if that sounds kind of cliched i don't mean it to but no i think it's a it's a really great question and i think it's a really interesting idea and you know i i i think there's a lot about the 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 first nations relationship with the land that we are are still understanding i know i always feel like an infant in my understanding of of what what that looks like because they're uh and, and a very dear friend of mine and the, somebody who i work with very very closely uh is 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 cree and uh she is she's a brilliant medium like absolutely out of this world medium and um it you know i've learned so much just from her alone um i used to teach in the uh, uh aboriginal and social work uh, psychology programs in the, some of the schools, some of the university colleges here. Um, and I was teaching my program, teaching the living. And it wasn't just uh, first nations people in the, in the classrooms. It was, it was all sorts of uh, backgrounds and cultures. It was Haiti and, you know, people from overseas and people, it was, it was a myriad of, of, of belief systems. Um, but, you know, every time I taught one of those classes, I learned just as much as, as they probably learned, if not more. Um, and over the years, uh, you know, investigating some of the things I've investigated here, um, you know, I've had to, to really gain an understanding that, you know, there are things here that, you know, even parapsychology hasn't really touched or, or, or been able to wrap their minds around one, a good example of that would be the Wendigo. Um, and, uh, about 20 minutes from my place, there's probably one of the the most significant cases of the Wendigo ever recorded and uh it not far from here and it was it was something that you know 10 years ago I would have turned around and said oh that's you know that's a that's a story 
it's a fairy tale. You know, I, I had no idea. And then when, when I was, I was delving into this and, and beginning to really understand, you know, what some of these stories are, it's, it's no, this isn't a fairy tale. This isn't, this isn't just stories that have been, um, you know, made up or, you know, meant to scare people or something like that. There's, there's actual physical evidence that something's going on here. So I, I've really had my eyes opened over the last number of years in, in a great, a, gr a great amount. So, I mean, so I, I almost feel underqualified a little bit to answer the question from, mm -hmm. from that perspective anyway. No, that's fine. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that Wendigo case? Yeah, it was probably one of the most significant cases in, um, in, uh, Alberta history for sure. It was actually ended up to be the first legal hanging in Alberta, uh, which became a really big deal with our uh, when, when the Northwest Mounted Police before they became the RCMP when the Northwest Mounted Police were still stationed here, and it had to do with a uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Swift Runner, and Swift Runner was a, a Cree trapper who lived uh, north of uh, Saint Albert, a little town called Saint Albert, and uh, at the time Saint Albert was basically just a mission, a European mission run by a fellow by the name of Father Lacombe. And uh, Swift Runner was a Cree trapper. He was a great big guy. It was like six foot four plus and super big, super heavy, just really broad shouldered. Um, and he was known around the area because he was a, he was a guide and, and whatnot as well. But he ended up for reasons that we weren't able to completely nail down. Uh, he ended up being ejected out of his out of his his tribe and his family. And his his family and himself was it was nine of them were ended up uh, basically sent to live out on their own. They were banished, and they said, you know, you guys can't stick around here anymore. Um, there was rumors that he had uh, some alcohol issues. There was a couple of other things that were going on, but they they basically said, no, you're not allowed to be here anymore. Anyway, long story short, over the the winter happens, and anybody that's not familiar with Alberta's winters, they are horrifically brutal. They are easily minus, you know, minus 40, minus 50 degrees outside, uh, Celsius, um, you know, it, it will freeze your skin off in under two minutes. And, uh, it's, it's really brutal. So, so being outside during this time period, and we're talking like 1800s, um, it's, it's a, it's another world. It's, it's a total different world. So Swift Runner ended up, uh, coming, uh, showing up uh, at Father Lacombe's doorstep in St. Albert one day and he was saying you know my my family all died because uh, you know it was a terrible winter and we had no food and it was it was awful and they died of starvation and I'm the only one left and so Father Lacombe let him in uh, but what they noticed was that he just didn't look like he was starving he he looked like he was pretty buff and pretty healthy and uh, they they would hear him in the night cause they let him stay and they, they would hear him in the night screaming that something was trying to get in his window to attack him. And they didn't know what to make of this. They just thought it's like, something's weird. Like all their red flags were going off. Something was really weird. And then the one day he said, you know, I want to, I want to take the kids in, in your, uh, you know, in your encampment here, I want to take them hiking. And there was something about that, that the, the, the fathers there were like, Nope, Nope, you're not. And uh, they ended up calling the police and the, the Northwest Mounted Police came and picked them up and said, you know, we want to know where your family is, where, where, where did this happen? Um, they ended up on a, basically this, this wild goose chase. He, his demeanor changed everything. He led them all over, all over Hell's Half Acre. And uh, when they finally came back to the campsite, 
um, he, uh, he, they discovered that he had, um, cooked and eaten all of his kids and fed the kids, uh, or fed the, uh, the, the mother or whatever to the, to the children. And it was, it was really horrific. Um, and anyway, long story short, the, um, he turned around and said the the reason why this happened was because I was possessed by the Wendigo and the Wendigo in, in various cultures, he doesn't just appear in one culture. He's, he's in various forms in multiple different uh, uh, first nations lore um, is that it's this entity, which is born of famine and born of that, that energy, famine, isolation, abuse, trauma, all of that. And it's forever hungry. And the more it eats, the hungrier it gets the more, you know, if it possesses you or it finds you, it'll either kill you or you end up turning into this Wendigo and then you'll become a Wendigo and then you'll go and, and, you know, like eat your family. And so what's, what's interesting about this, the Wendigo case itself, like that was Swift Runner. But um, what was interesting with this is that there is a, a very long uh, criminal history of these cases that have been put in front of judges. Um, there's been a lot of physical evidence. There's been some really strange physical evidence. Um, and the more you dig into this concept and, and the history behind this stuff, the more you start to realize that, no, there is, there's absolutely something to this that, that we can't explain. Um, so yeah, really interesting, fascinating stuff, but a, a really good example again of, of, you know, why I think we, we need to sit down. We have a lot to learn from, from these people. Mm, definitely. Yeah. I, that's a fascinating, quite gruesome case, but yeah, I, I, well, there's some of the odd evidence about that's associated with cases such as this. You, you mentioned that just now. Yeah, one of them is that uh, the people who seem to be affected by the Wendigo oftentimes are um, they're they know that they're turning. Um, it's not a situation where you know they're losing consciousness and then becoming you know, vicious and angry or, or something like that. They, they know that they're going, there was a case, uh, I think it was, a, I think it was in Slave Lake, could have been lesser Slave Lake, but I think it was Slave Lake where, um, it was a, a fellow who knew that he was, he was turning Wendigo so clearly that he instructed his family to tie him up. And, uh, he was sitting in his living room. Apparently it used to be a very, very, very nice guy, very loving father. And he turned around and, and instructed his, his family to kill him and they couldn't understand it. They're like, you know, we're not going to do that. And he was like, no, you don't understand. If you don't kill me, I'm going to eat my daughter. And he's like, this it's like, I can't stop the thoughts in my head. And so, uh, they, they ended up killing him and it went to trial. Um, but it, you know, it is very odd. Um, so, so the mentally, the, the, the breakdown and the spiral is, is very unique. Um, but also, um, there's been reports of autopsies that have been done on the bodies where they've opened up these bodies and there's been a collection of ice actually around the heart of the, the people that have turned Wendigo, which is supposed, uh, according to the lore, um, one of the ways that, you know, you're supposed to be able to kill the Wendigo, for instance, is that you're supposed to, you know, uh, make it eat hot tallow or something like that that's supposed to melt the icy heart of the Wendigo, which is, you know, it sounds like, it, you know, it sounds like lore or superstition or something like that. And then it, you know, it turns out that, you know, these, some of these people have been opened up and there's been reported, there's been ice actually encasing around the, the heart of the victim. So it's just very strange things like that, that um, it's, it's hard to ignore after a while. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm interested. Is it, have any of the sort of symptoms of, 
of becoming a Wendigo, are they have they been identified with anything like a like a sort of a psychosis, a syndrome? I'm thinking there are there are syndromes, for example, where where people believe that they're dead. I think it's called Capgras syndrome, and and other ones where they think that people have been replaced by imposters. I mean, what do you think is the mental illness aspect of this, and what do you think is something else? Well, that's where it gets really it gets really tricky. There was a, a, a ethno historian here in in Edmonton that was uh, working for the University of Alberta that uh, he actually ended up writing an incredible thesis on this uh, and on this exactly this factor is you know is is this something that's mental illness or is it something more than that? And um, he his name is Nathan Carlson. If you get a chance to look up his uh, thesis, it's it's online and it's available. But um, it was called Reviving Whitico, I think. And uh, it's it's a really 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 brilliant uh, breakdown as to you know why this can't be written off as as mental illness and I won't go into all of it here but um, he makes a, a extremely good case not for the fact that it's necessarily you know a, a monster called the Wendigo but it's definitely something that we can't write off as uh, as you know oh it's mental illness it's you know schizophrenia or something like that it's it's definitely a, a phenomenon that's that sets apart from uh, what we what we understand right now as uh, like psychosis or a psychological problem. Mm, okay. Um, a couple of times you've mentioned your teaching the living program, and that's also uh, a book that you put out. Um, how did that come about, and what is it about? Sure. So yeah, teaching the living. Steph and I, uh, I mentioned a little bit actually earlier um, where I was saying that you know Steph and I were really looking at the living and looking for. For, for patterns to understand, you know, what was the role that, that people had in, uh, in the phenomenon that was going on around them? Because in, in no situation in our world are we, are we independent from the events happening around us. And we know this now from, you know, different experiments in quantum physics and, and things like that. We know all of that. Um, so we wanted to know what was the extent, what was the extent that people had to play in, in what was going on. And what we discovered was that their emotional state of being, whether it be, you know, a typically, you know, you're a joyful person or you're typically, you know, somebody who deals with stress well, or you don't deal with stress well at all, or you're, you know, more angry. We realized that a lot of those specific characteristics were playing out in the, in the type of paranormal activity that people were getting. So, the people that were, you know, generally having really positive experiences were people that were generally positive people. Um, they were more open. They had certain characteristics that that made them prone to having these more positive experiences. They had a more joyful outlook on life. Um, they processed stress really well. There was a lot of things that were were going on that they could actually you could actually point to and say, you know, this is probably why it's going on. Um, where with the people who were having really negative experiences, it was kind of the same thing where you could turn around and point to things that were going on in their life or events that have happened that they hadn't healed and things like that, where you could, you could see that there was a, a, a reflection going on within the types of activity that was happening and the, what they were, were dealing with. Um, so things like anger, frustration, upset, stuff like that was all uh, a factor in, in the hauntings that they were experiencing. So we began to realize that ultimately the key is not to, 
you know, try to fight something you can't see, the, ultimately the key is with the, with the person. So we began to develop programs and processes that would get people to take a hard look at themselves and shift themselves into a better emotional direction. And once we did that, we began to notice that the, the haunting and the activity around them it changed. So for us, it was always a matter of, okay, you know, how do we, how do we help these individual people and do it on a case by case basis, um, rather than trying to, you know, fight and argue or diagnose something that you just, you, you know, we still don't know science still doesn't know what it is. Um, so we've, we, we sort of left that question aside and started dealing with the people and we had ex exceptional results. Hmm. That's such a nuanced approach I think to paranormal investigation I've often thought that is that um, it can be easy to sort of decide what is happening somewhere without um, including the the witness or the experiencer in that event like they they're often they can sometimes be just seen as the as sort of like the the victim of of what is happening to them but but the person is the the experience is a component in in the activity. Absolutely, and in you know we see it over and over again in cases of psychokinesis. We see it in cases where um, you know people have, especially kids, have been been studied over the years. Where you know kids coming from homes that are you know broken homes or or something like that, and then you shift their environment and the activity changes. So there's been a lot uh, of background research that that's been been put into this stuff by, by my various researchers, myself included, but lots of others. And, you know, it's, it's something that it, it doesn't play well on TV shows because it, on TV shows, you know, it, the, you want it to be this, you know, situation where the person's being victimized, but on very, very rarely do you have a situation in life ever where it's just a one-sided pancake, you know, usually it's, it's two, there, there is two sides to what's going on and it's no different in, in paranormal activity as, as, as well as any more than it is in things like relationships, you know, is, is, you know, only one person, the victim in a relationship, not likely there's usually a dynamic that's going on there. That's either, you know, really positive or it's toxic or whatever, but it, 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 there, there's always a role that we're playing. And it, I think oftentimes the, the shows sort of portray it like, uh, you know, we can negate that. And it's just, especially in this scenario, you just can't. Hmm. So what do you think that indicates about hauntings themselves? Um, what do you, what do you think this other thing is that is having an, a sort of a, an interaction with the person in the house that's experiencing the activity? Well, the way I always, the way I always phrase it to, to my, my students is the fact that you have to kind of look at your emotions, almost like a radio dial. And when you're, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, whatever you've got going on, you're emitting. And you know, as you're moving through life, you can, and you can see it with, with different people. You know, if you want to look at, you know, where you are in, in your life and who you're talking to and, and whatever, uh, if you want to know where you're sitting, belief wise and emotion wise and whatnot, just look at the people around you. Um, you know, you can usually get a pretty good bead on, on what you're bringing into your world when you, you, you start to take note of your environment, you know? Um, and it's, it's the same way with this. Like if, if you've got, if you're coming into a space and you're, you're broadcasting a signal and of just being, you know, upset and depressed and whatnot, you typically get every single thing that's going to line up with that signal, that frequency, um, 
show up in your experience. So it's the same thing with this is like, if, if, if that's, you know, people that, that get up in the morning and say, you know, I'm just going to have a really, really bad day. And they do like everything that can possibly go wrong goes wrong. Um, and you know, they end up attracting seemingly like random events to support the fact that they're having a terrible day. And it's amazing to watch some people because <laughs> some of the things that they end up, that, that end up happening is just, is mind blowing. Um, but they oftentimes they have this underlying belief where they're just that, you know, it's like, well, I'm just the most unluckiest person on the planet. Anyway, this stuff just happens to me. Well, if you listen to their narrative, it's no clue. It's no missing link as to why it's happening. Um, but you know, our thoughts create our energy creates what our intentions create. And, and the sooner people can understand that, the more, uh, the closer you can get to understanding this stuff. Mm. Do you think that, um, if a, a person with a, who thinks sort of negatively has a, has a negative mindset and draws things to them. Do you think that the, the energy, the, the whatever it is that is drawn to that sort of a person is something that was human once, like a classic ghost, or do you think it's more that it's something that's completely different? It's a non-human energy. I think the negative stuff is almost entirely non-human. Um, and the it's interesting when uh, the CIA uh, was working with uh, the Monroe Institute back in the, the 70s, um, they had a, a really, really interesting experiment going called the, Ga the Gateway Project. And that was the one thing that they had noticed within the Gateway Project was that um, they were running into what they believed were thought forms and these, these intelligences that were not of, they were never person, they were never human, um, but they were actually thought, con thought that had become conscious and was interacting on its own. And then the, later in the 70s, there was an experiment done in Toronto uh, called the Philip Experiment, where they actually proved this. And uh, what they did was that they created a, uh, a character, completely fictional by the name of Philip, and then began to to channel him in like essentially like a seance, like an old Victorian seance, uh, believing wholeheartedly that this, this Philip existed and was real. And what was so interesting was that after a, a number of, of months, uh, Philip that was, you know, originally just a, a thought, a thought and a character, uh, became very physically interactive with them. And it was answering questions and it would move furniture and it would do all of these different things. And then they repeated the experiment again, um, with a character they made up called Lilith and it was a different group of people. Uh, and they, they recreated it and did it again flawlessly. And the experiment was put on by the Toronto Society of Psychical Research and Mensa. And uh, they were able to show, demonstrate again and again, that enough conscious focused thought can actually develop consciousness on its own. And the idea behind it is uh, is an idea within both quantum physics and parapsychology right now, which is that consciousness is fundamental to the universe. It's not actually emergent from the brain. It actually exists outside of us. Um, so basically this, this focused thought is able to somehow become conscious. So the, a lot of the negative stuff that we're, that, that we're seeing happen uh, has hallmarks of, uh, of this, of this pattern and, uh, and not on, completely unlike uh you know some of the interactions that people have with you know loved ones that have passed over and, and whatnot is com just completely different do you think that this could also happen in things like bigfoot encounters do, do, do you think that, that what you were talking about in terms of the activity that 
that people encounter based on their sort of mindset would that work with someone seeing something in a in a forest well theoretically yeah um you know like theoretically yeah i mean and it, it would apply to even things like the wendigo right like if if you if you really believe that that it's there and that you you're you know, you're you're pushing energy in that direction you know can you can you create it and you know the philip experiment says yes we can um so it's it's really interesting like it the the entire theory in and of itself it's like this extreme version of psychokinesis where you know our thoughts are transforming our reality and uh, and creating within that said reality so it's yeah it's a very interesting concept that i think it can apply to many different aspects of the paranormal field there was a a fellow by the name of uh, Dr. David Halperin, who wrote a great book called The Intimate Alien, and he actually applies this theory to UFOs as well. And it's it's really quite quite fascinating. Mm, absolutely. With Bigfoot and a lot of the well-known cases and, and lesser known ones as well, when you, when you read about them, and I think this connects to what we've just been talking about, is what is most fascinating is that why did this person see this thing where they did what what was sort of the the phenomenology of it i guess i I always find that the most interesting thing especially with with things like bigfoot and other weird entities seen like the flatwoods monster and the whole mothman thing it's that yeah that seemed to be happening for a reason but i can't quite put my finger on why it happened and why those things look the way they did yeah, and there's so much I think we don't we we just don't understand when it comes to 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 this stuff. Like, I mean, it's just the it's the deep weird of of the paranormal because there is no uh, I, I there's no guidebook to it, um, you know. And all we can do is just is document and examine and look at it and document and and see if you can you know find the patterns. Um, in things like this, and you know, even like you're saying, Mothman. I mean, it is I. I I can't even hazard a guess as to to what is going on, Mothman. Like just such, such strange, strange incidents. But um, you know, the but this this idea of of you know the thought form and the projection and these different frequencies and the things that we're um, you know maybe able to see that at times and then can't see at other times. Uh, you know, I I think we just have to remember that our 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 experience of the world is so minimal compared to, you know, the, the frequencies that we, we can't pick up on, uh, on the day-to-day basis. I mean, we just, we have such a limited experience of the world that it's, it's so hard to know the, the expanse of what we're not seeing. Mm, yeah. I, I think as well, there's still this in Western civilization anyway, there's still, there's still this sort of inherent concept of being that we're separate from nature when we're actually very much still connected to it or, or should feel like we are I, I think a lot of it comes from that and perhaps being conditioned out of um a healthy like a, a more a more fun relationship with our imagination and and what it can what it what the imagination is almost for yeah and i think that's part of the the fun and the journey of of this whole thing like that's the one thing with parapsychology that that gets missed so much by the general public and it's something that i've been really passionate about and trying to present to the general public whether it be through my books or whether it be through um the uh my live shows or you know whatever um it's it's something for me that i'm really passionate about presenting because it is such a fantastic and imaginative world and we have the ability to create beyond what we have 
any idea about at this point and we're, we're starting to understand it we're starting to touch on it and you can't do it without parapsychology um but you know people are i think get lost in the idea that it's just about oh it's about a haunted house no it's not it's it's about the the idea of of consciousness what is consciousness what does it mean what are how are we creating this environment like there's there's so much that's going on and you've got hauntings and stuff like that that are you know a, a tiny little piece of the bigger picture but they are a tiny piece Hmm. In your new book, the, the Gift of Instinct, I think it's chapter seven, which is the the legends chapter. Um, you you write about uh, a cryptid, uh, which I, I only recently read about actually, but called the the Van Meter Visitor, and I was I was yeah. reading that and going, what? <laughs> Just it- yeah, absolutely bizarre, like out of this world. Yeah, can you just talk a little bit about that? I'm sure my listeners would be fascinated to hear about it. Yeah, so it, back in in Iowa uh, in the early 1900s, there was this uh, there was this case, and uh, it was uh, the small town of Van Meter in Iowa, tiny little town, tiny little main street. It hasn't changed much since that time, and uh, they reported this what was essentially a giant pterodactyl with a great big light on its face, like almost like an angler fish. And uh, they said the light was so bright that it was, it was blinding. And I remember in like that, that time period, there was no led lights. There were no spotlights. None of that was, was around. So this was something that was so striking to them that they were going, what, what is this? Um, And what they had figured was going on was that, they had been digging in in mines that were just outside the town and the theory was was that whatever this this thing was and it turned out that there was two of them but whatever this thing was had come up from the mines and uh was doing i don't know what but it came with a horrific smell about it it was uh you know it it climbed like a bird it was it was very weird and and, and even at that point you know they're looking at this going like they've never seen anything like this before. I mean, they had no comparison, but uh, they ended up chasing this thing essentially back to the mines. And then when they, when they, when it dove down into the mines again and they, they blew up the, the entrance, it never came back again. They never saw them again. Um, so it, really bizarre story. Um, but even the, the main, uh, you know, the, the leaders of the community were, were reporting this thing. Um, the, the bank owner ended up shooting out the front window of his bank, trying to kill this thing. Like it was just absolute pandemonium for about a week. And there was no explanation ever found. And and really there was no other examples of this found either. Like you, you look back through history um, and, you know, you get like the odd pterodactyl sighting, cryptid sighting, that kind of a thing. But there was nothing that really compared to the, the Van Meter visitor. Um, so very, <coughs> excuse me, it was a very, um, very unique, unique story. And uh, what, what struck me about it was that the descriptions of this creature were very specific. Like they were describing seeing it, for example, sleeping on top of a, a, a pole at one point and it climbed down the pole and, and the way they described it was like a, a parrot or something like that climbing down a pole. Like he used his beak as leverage and he was kind of inching his feet down. And like, it was, it was a very specific description. Like if you did not have a bird 
you would not describe it that way. You would have just said, oh, he jumped down or he flew down or whatever. But the descriptions were really specific. And yeah, it was just, it really struck me as a very, very unique piece of history. Mm, Definitely. I mean, I suppose it's not too long after the the airship flap in America um, in terms of a, something with a bright light and, and, but it's not, I mean, most airship encounters are quite gentle and, and odd. They're not horrifying and like a giant pterodactyl. I can't think of, of, of any sort of logical explanation for it other than it's some sort of otherworldly being that's, but I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, and, and I don't know either. A very good friend of mine and actually who, who wrote the foreword for The Gift of Instinct, Chad Lewis, he uh, wrote a book on on the van meter visitor because he is, he does uh, uh, historical tours and stuff like that every year at the van meter visitor festival. Cause the, the town celebrates this story and uh, it, it's, it, it is, it's just absolutely fascinating. And I mean, if anybody could have dug up an answer or history or something, it's Chad and he's still as stumped as everybody else. So for me, that says a lot because if it stumps him, it's probably the answer has probably not been found. Mm, yeah. I mean, do, do we know what sort of mine was it? Um, I bel- I want to say it was either coal or brick. Ah, um, okay. It was one of the two. Yeah, I was just wondering if it was, if it was um if it was a gold mine or some precious metals. Then in folklore, often yeah, like a dragon uh, sitting down there or something. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, who knows? But that that case is is just is crazy. So. Going back to your new book, The Gift of Instinct, how does that sort of follow on from uh, teaching the living? Yeah, but it was funny because when I when I was asked to write the book, I did the second edition of Teaching the Living and they said, we really want you to do a new book. And I, I was struggling with it because I had everything that I'd really wanted to talk about, I put into Teaching the Living because I wasn't planning on doing a second book. I was like, okay, I'm just going to write this and that's it and then put it out there and people can, you know, take it or leave it. And um, so I really had to, to think hard about what it was that I wanted to, to write about. And I, I realized that there was a running theme through all parapsychologists, all these philosophers, these neuroscientists, all, all of these people that were involved in this field. And it was a, and it's a running thing through every person on the planet. And that is there's an instinct and a calling for more, for understanding more about the universe understanding more about who we are and our connection with the non-physical arena. And as I began to, to explore that idea and explore my own experiences with that, with that calling that I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I, I began to look at these individuals and the lessons in which they were imparting on us through their experiences, not just through their research, but their experiences and their journeys moving into in through the world and the impressions that they left. So um, I, I realized that this book was, wasn't about the technical side of, of parapsychology, like teaching the living, but it was about something a, far more broad and far more applicable to, I think just everybody. I mean, and teaching the living had, had the, had the, uh, the the same ability because it was written literally for everyone um and the gift of instinct is as well but it was uh yeah i just i wanted to i wanted to give people some some concrete breakdown lessons that that not only would apply to the paranormal but their everyday life 
Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So can you like give a, an example of, of, of something from the, the book that applies in that way? Because each chapter is sort of described as a lesson. Yeah, and, and each one is meant to either stand on its own or you can read the whole thing and really get the impact of the whole thing. Um, probably, I, I think one of the, the biggest lessons or the hard, one of the hardest lessons for, for people is, is the second one, which is letting go. Um, and in parapsychology and, and the paranormal, it's, it's so key because without letting go, a lot of the things that we consider paranormal can't really happen. So things like remote viewing, um, having psychic experiences, uh, all of those types of things are all reliant on um, letting go and the ability to let go and, uh, you know, meditation and calming the mind and things like that. Um, but at the same time, the experiences in our own lives and moving through our own, our, our own troubles and our, 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 um, you know, the things that even that we want to have happen, um, are dependent on how much we can let go and trust and follow that instinct. And without being able to let go, we can't hear the instinct that will take us to the next level. Um, you know, without letting go, you're not going to be able to get to the thing that you want if you're, if you're hanging on to what you've got. Um, so a lot of things like that, where, where if people can understand that it's, it's not just about having that paranormal experience, it's about having a life experience. And when you, when you, you can, you can grasp that it's all one in the same thing. It's, it's a really powerful life tool. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, Morgan, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. If people want to find out more about your research and your books, how best do they do that? Uh, the best place to go is my website, which is entityseeker.ca. Is kind of the one-stop shop. You'll find links to my books, uh, my podcast, Supernatural Circumstances, uh, all my live shows coming up, uh, all the events, um, TV shows, all of that kind of thing. Uh, but it's, it's basically the one-stop shop for everything. You can find all my social media links, Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that there as well. Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Morgan. That was a really fun conversation with Morgan. Another small bit of housekeeping from the interview, though. The syndrome I describe is Cotard syndrome. Catbash syndrome is the condition where the sufferer believes people around them have been replaced by duplicates. Definitely check out Morgan's website if you enjoyed this episode, as there is a lot more information there on her books, research, teaching programs, and podcast. Please also consider rating the episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media, as it all really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow some of the sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.